All right, so if you've been uh, watching the news reports in um, Texas and uh, I think in now in Louisiana, um, Hurricane Harvey has hit very hard. Uh, we were watching some news reports uh, just yesterday and watching some aerial coverage of neighborhoods underwater, watching people on boats rescue individuals, watching um, people really show uh, what love is about as they uh, venture out into dangerous areas and try to rescue other people. And so I know President Trump uh, ventured out that way. He took a look at what was going on. And he asked for a national day of prayer today. So I think it's pretty outstanding. Whatever your political views may be and whatever you think of the president is secondary to what's going on right now and the needs that are out there. And I'm grateful that our president actually asked us to pray and to seek the Lord. And so what we're going to do is just take a moment uh, to pray. What I'd like you to do, though, I want to show you something related to our topic. Uh, the big theme as we move into 2 Samuel is the kingdom of God. And I want to start us off by going to Luke 11. This is the famous Lord's Prayer. I just want to pick out one segment of the prayer. If you don't mind, if you're physically able, stand to your feet. If you're physically able, Luke 11 is what we're going to read. I'd like us to read this together. Many of you have memorized this, but um, I don't have it up on the screen. But uh, this is Luke 11, verse 2. Luke 11, verse 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard, but whatever your version is, it'll be close enough. <laughs> Luke 11, verse 2. Let's read it together. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Now we know Matthew's version says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can have a seat. So, thy kingdom come. When the... Uh, Disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. The Lord's Prayer, one of the central themes, and you can see it behind me, is the kingdom of God, thy kingdom come. Adding what Matthew put, thy will be done. By the way, this is not a generic prayer that you just, you just pray to pray, like from rote. This is a prayer that Jesus asked you to pray, listen, for you. You should be praying for you your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. Everybody with me? Because we can pray that generally and we can say, and, and there's a general application to it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. From the big picture perspective. But when we say, Lord, teach me to pray, I'm, I'm praying your kingdom come, your will be done where? In my life. In, in other words, if the will of God is going to be done, where, where is it going to happen? Who is actually going to perform the will of God? The people of God. You know, when we pray prayers, we should think about the content and the substance. You know, if, if you for the next week just prayed this segment of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, would your week change? Amen. You know, the kingdom of God, the major theme of the kingdom of God is really about how you live your life and by what lens you look at life, through which filter you look at life. What is your worldview? How do you see tragedy? How do you see death? How do you make sense of the problem of evil? You know, sometimes I hear people 
And, and I'm sure they have good intentions in mind, but they say something like this, our thoughts are with you. Well, that's wonderful. And in, and in one sense, I appreciate that, that you're thinking of me, but your thoughts have very little power to change my circumstances. Our thoughts are with you. I know what people are saying, and, and I suppose that someone who doesn't have faith in the Lord, that's about all they can say. And, it's, and it may be good to say, we're thinking of you, but look, I would rather hear that you're praying for me. Amen? Because we believe that there's power in prayer. Now, we can't make sense of everything that happens in this world. We live in a fallen world. But we know that God will even exploit these kinds of circumstances for his good purposes. And it will go to the building up of his kingdom. His kingdom is much bigger than this place that we live right here. So as we move into 2 Samuel this morning, and we're going to look at David's uh, lament over Saul and Jonathan. This is 2 Samuel chapter 1. As we, we stopped uh, right before we got into the lament, and the lament is really putting grief into words, I have some questions about just why David responds this way and why you respond to life the way you do. Why do you bother to pray for somebody in the hospital? Why would, why would we pray for people who have been devastated by a hurricane unless we believe it has some sort of power? Some sort of implications come from praying. And some people say, well, does it really? There was a political article that came out really mocking people who were giving any kind of credit to God. Some of you saw it. It was a spoof. It was a cartoon put out by Politico that basically says, thank you, God, for sending help. And, and the cartoonist basically says, no, it's the government that helped you. Oh, okay. So really trying to make people who pray look like idiots, just to be quite candid with you. There's a move in our society right now to make faith and people of faith look like idiots. However, it's quite interesting that the people who live in this country have benefited from idiots, sorry, people who founded the country on biblical values, who believed in the God of the Bible, who were praying at the founding of the nation. They were imperfect people. We all know that. They had their issues. We all know that. But they wrote founding documents based upon biblical truth and the God of the Bible. And the people who have benefited from this form of government have benefited from it because it was inspired by the Bible. So people say, well, there were a lot of deists in that group. There was a small number of deists in that group. Most of them were Bible-believing Christians. A lot of them had trained for the ministry. That was the founding of our country. Imperfect, yes. Flawed, yes. Who is not? Had issues, yes. But believed that the United States needed to be founded on biblical truth. This is, this is the war we're in. I'm sure you've probably noticed we have a conflict of kingdoms. Have you noticed? If you haven't noticed, you need to just put it in your mind right now. There is a conflict of kingdoms. Whose worldview is going to really rule you or rule the day? We have our young people streaming onto college campuses right now. Whose worldview are they getting on a typical college campus? Let me ask you. Whose worldview? 
What kingdom are they being taught about? For the most part, it's not the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of this world. And when I say the kingdom of this world, I'm talking about the world system and the world's values, which really comes down to humanism. If you want to just simply have a definition of humanism, humanism is about humans. It's man at the center of everything. God gets demoted and man gets elevated. And when man gets elevated and God gets demoted, you have the kingdom of man and not the kingdom of God. As Augustine wrote, you have the city of man and the city of God and you have to decide which kingdom you're going to live for and which king you're going to serve. Look at human history. How have the kings of the world done? How about presidents? You know, go down the line of presidents just in your lifetime. Some of you are more seasoned than others. We'll use the word seasoned. <laughs> so we've watched, you know, some of us have watched quite a few administrations, right? And we might have our favorite presidents. But in the big picture of things, how well does man do? in solving the world's problems, in giving us answers that are going to go beyond the grave. Not so good. So what we need is answers that are bigger. The questions that we all wrestle with is, are they true, though? Are they simply pie-in-the-sky answers? Do, can they hold the day? Can they win the day in, on Mars Hill in Acts 17? In the world place, the market of ideas? Can your Christian worldview actually hold weight in a science class when we're debating origins? And can, can you make an argument for the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture and why this book is divine rather than human in origin? Can you make a case for the kingdom of God? That's what we need. That's why David really is a type of foreshadowing, even in a small way, of the true king, the coming kingdom. Jesus Christ is the king. The coming kingdom is what you're part of. And Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Why did David not kill Saul when he had a chance twice? When, he, when Saul was literally served to David on a platter, why did he not kill him? Survival of the fittest? Why, why didn't he... Why didn't he just take Saul's head right there? Because he considered Saul to be God's anointed. Because he did not believe it was his place. But then you say, wait a minute, Pastor Michael. Last, last time we were together, David instructed the young men to kill the Amalekite. Oh, that's right. But why? Because it was based upon justice and the standards of God. This man had killed God's anointed. So again, we go back now to worldviews. What kingdom do you serve? What determines your viewpoint, for example, on abortion? Marriage. Let's go down the list. The church right now is having to make some big decisions about whether the winds of culture and the system of the world will decide what you believe or the kingdom of God will. You're going to have to decide that as an individual. You're going to have to decide that as a family. You're going to have to decide where you're going to plant your flag and what kingdom do you actually serve. And by the way, to be a citizen of the United States is not, it's not like a mutually exclusive thing. You can be a good citizen, but know you're part of the kingdom of God. Everybody with me? 
All right, so we're going we're gonna to move into 2 Samuel. Uh, we're going to pick it up at verse uh, 17, but let's pray one more time. Father, as we get now into the Bible, we want to get the Bible deep into us because it is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword in our prayer today. Also, as we think about taking the Lord's Supper, which we will do at the conclusion of this message, is that we want to be people who are living for the kingdom and the king of the kingdom. And help us, Lord, to see everything through that filter, to look at the world, to look at what happens, to look at life and death and behavior and morals and everything through this lens, Lord. It's really the only thing that makes sense of life. It's really what we long for. The transcendent cause of the kingdom of God, the worship of the king. You've already put it in our hearts. You've put eternity in our hearts, Lord. So help us to be your people, to live out the values of the kingdom until you come for us or we go to be with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Here's the lament of David. Then David, 2 Samuel 1, 17, chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. They had just died on the battlefield. He told them, verse 18, to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And then he begins, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Now, this is the lament. And uh, if you look behind me for a second, this is part two of how the mighty have fallen. And uh, when you look at the world and you look at the kingdom of the world, no matter how great an individual may be, no matter how many years a person gets, no matter how wealthy they become, you know, you could talk about wealth, you could talk about servants, you could talk about property, you can talk about this or that. I'm thinking specifically of Solomon. One of the things that Solomon lamented the most is that every mighty man falls. Time gets to us. The seasons go on. And people who once had these incredible positions end up being replaced. They, they die. The world, uh, the world, in terms of their experience in it, is over, and the mighty fall. And so this is the plight of every person. This is the plight of King Saul. He falls. He was uh, the king that everybody asked for. We want to be like the other nations. Give us Saul. His name literally means asked for. They got what they asked for. His name was Saul. Did he do some good things? He certainly did. He won some battles. Uh, there's going to be things here in the lament that uh, David leads the nation through that will honor him. Uh, Matthew Henry says Saul was his father-in-law, that of, that of David. Though he had done him a great deal of wrong, David does not wreak his revenge upon his memory when he is in the grave. But like a good man, a man of honor... He conceals his faults. Let the corrupt part of the man earth to earth, ashes to ashes. Let the blemish be hidden and a veil drawn over the deformity. Close quote. Leave it there. You know, David could have gone up to a podium and said, hey, I don't know if you guys knew this, but Saul was a major thorn in my side and I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> That would have been pretty brutal, right? 
I mean, David had everything to gain. He had been living in caves, running from a man who had really become psychotic. In fact, Saul had an evil spirit that was harassing him. And the only relief that he got from that evil spirit was when, who? David <laughs> played the harp for him. Can you imagine that? Here's a man who wants your demise and you go in and play guitar for him and hope he doesn't throw another spear at you. You want to talk about a tough gig for those of you who are musicians? <laughs> Jesus loves you, this I know. <laughs> Please don't throw another sword <laughs> spear at me. That's a tough gig. David could have gone to the podium and said a lot of things. You know, but he went up there and he said, oh, look at verse 19. Your beauty, O Israel, your beauty is slain on your high places. What? Your beauty? <laughs> to David, do you think Saul was beautiful? He was ugly. Let's face it, he had flipped out. He had made David's life miserable. And David calls him beautiful. What? Wait a minute. How does someone get to that point where they can see people that way? I mean, Saul's in the grave now. But has the kingdom of God so impacted your heart that you can see people who are maybe, maybe ugly to a lot of people, can you see the beauty in them? Can you see beauty in humanity? Can you look a little bit deeper because you belong to a kingdom that looks a little deeper than the surface? Can you say to somebody, you know what? You're beautiful in God's sight. You're a rose in the desert. You know, you, you speak beauty into people's lives how many of you, just take a moment right now, can remember someone who spoke a refreshing word into your life when you were at a low point? Just think for a moment. How long have you lived on that? I can, I can remember right now people have said refreshing words into my life that have pushed me forward for months and even years. This is, this is what this king is about. And remember, David is a shadowy figure of who? The greater David, his name is Jesus, who sees you right now as what? Beautiful. He is the master potter. You are the clay. How many of you have seen uh, Michael, what's his name again? Mike Roselle, the potter. How many of you have seen the potter demonstration? So he's, uh, he's actually a, he does, uh, what do you call the guy? <laughs> he's a potter. Anyway, so he's got, he's got the clay on the wheel. And uh, when you're watching these pottery demonstration, he's giving you a live illustration of how God is the potter and you are the clay. And he's forming this beautiful clay pot and you can see it taking shape and it's starting to look good. You're like, yeah, yeah this is cool. And then he just, he wrecks it and starts over again. You're like, oh, wow, wow, why? That was looking good. 
because God wants to make you into something more beautiful than you can imagine. Even Saul, with all of his faults. I mean, how many of you, when you think of Saul, the first king of Israel, Israel think of positive things? Be honest. If somebody asks you, hey, give me a quick five-minute synopsis on King Saul, first king of Israel, you say, oh, wow. He erred exceedingly and played the fool, went to the witch at Endor, the medium hooded at night, died on the battlefield. He was weird, psychotic. An evil spirit terrorized him. The guy was off his saddle, <laughs> whatever you would say. And David says, your beauty? Well, David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your identity in Jesus Christ is such a huge thing. You belong to a king in a kingdom who sees you differently. You say, but does he really, Pastor Michael? Does he really see me that way? Well, he did choose you to be part of his kingdom for how long? Apparently, he wants to be with you because he chose you to be part of his kingdom. That's pretty cool. So David says, Oh, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. You know, this whole thing about the evil spirit coming into Saul's life is a perplexing one because it says it was an evil spirit from the Lord. How many of you have wrestled with that text? If you haven't, you might want to go back and study it because theologians wrestle with it. How could it be an evil spirit from the Lord? What in the world's going on there? Well, who allowed Satan to get at Job? God. Who sent a, a minister of Satan to buffet Paul? God. You mean to say that even Satan in some way gets used by, God's for God, by God for God's purposes? Yeah. Can I figure out every angle of that? No. Do I get it all? Nope. Do I ask for it? Nope. <laughs> Here's a question. Why do you think God would have done that in Saul's life? If, if you think positively, do you think that maybe it was God trying to say to Saul, I'm going to let something pretty terrible happen to you spiritually. And I'm going to see, and of course I'm putting this in human terms, I'm going to see if you'll cry out to me. I'm going to see if when this thorn in your flesh comes and spiritual darkness hovers over your life, if you'll cry out to me. What was Saul's biggest problem? Self-exaltation, trying to do things his way. Disobedience to God. He would not follow through on the word of God. He lived in doubt. Paul, who asked for that thorn in the flesh to be taken away, you can write down 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He said the reason it came to his life in the first place was to keep him from exalting himself, which is part of what God does. Now the mighty have fallen. Just think for a second. How many, how many mighty men and women have gone down over the years? I'm talking about moral failures. Significant crossroads where 
a huge blunder was made. How many mighty men and women have fallen? You know, we hear Christians all the time say, I fell away. What does that mean? It means I'm not following God anymore. I'm not going to church anymore. I fell away. How many people do you think are driving out in Corona today that have fallen away? For, for varied reasons. They're, they're out there. They're hurting. There's one, uh, Isaiah 14, turn to your right, Isaiah chapter 14, who is in the fall business. I think we all know who he is. His name is Satan, chapter 14 of Isaiah. He's in the fall business. What do I mean by that? Genesis chapter 3, theologians call the fall chapter. Why? Because Eve was hanging out by the tree. Satan, through the serpent, beguiled her. Isaiah 14. She partook of the fruit. And Adam was there. And Adam was like, oh, okay. This sounds like a pretty good plan. <laughs> He partook of the fruit and they fell. How the mighty have fallen. What, what did they lack in the garden? Nothing. But they fell. Look at Isaiah 14. This is really interesting. It says, when the Lord, 14.1, will have compassion on Jacob or Israel and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. This has last day's connotations. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved that you will take up a taunt against the king of Babylon who Nebuchadnezzar was obviously a, a big part of their pain as he sacked Jerusalem and say, how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and it is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Sheol is often a picture of the grave or the underworld. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you. How's that for a new bedspread? Worms are your covering, new blankie. Now notice this. The immediate context is the king of Babylon and his fall, his demise. But then notice what it says. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who weaken the nations. 
But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of the sky or stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. On a deeper level, many theologians think that Satan is being addressed as this, these verses move on. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook, note it, kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain, who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. And then it says, prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Let's go back to 2 Samuel. The mighty fall. Satan fell. Revelation 12, if you write it down for your notes, talks about Satan's fall. It mentions Satan and his angels who fell. If I asked you, what was the cause of Satan's fall? What would you say it was? Pride. Because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But was pride really Saul's problem? It was probably one of his problems. But unbelief was his other problem. And it cost him dearly. David's response to Saul is amazing. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin M. Stanton. He called Lincoln a low cunning clown. He called Lincoln the original gorilla. He said it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln never responded to his slander. But when as president he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. When his incredulous friends asked why, Lincoln replied, because he is the best man for the job. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in, in a coffin, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity was finally broken by Lincoln's long-suffering and non-retaliatory spirit. Patient love won out. This was recorded by John MacArthur. That's the stuff of the kingdom. But how hard is that? Imagine if you found out that someone was calling you a gorilla. How about if you saw it on Twitter or Facebook? How would you want to respond to that? Would you be thinking of 17 different angles to respond? Can you imagine if you're running for president and someone was calling you a gorilla? You don't have to go to Africa to see gorillas. Just look at Lincoln. <laughs> 
and you take the high road, you don't even respond? And when Jesus was being reviled, he did not revile in return. When people were mocking him, he cast no threats back. And get this, he had the power at his disposal to fry the landscape. Put yourself there for a second. You're up on a cross. People are walking by. Hey, you! You claim to be the son of God. Maybe spit in your face. You! Get yourself off the cross now and we'll believe in you. How many of you would just want to use your x-ray vision just for a moment? <laughs> just one of them, right? <laughs> David is a type of Jesus. Some of you say, that's great. Heard that before. <laughs> hey, uh, here's a question. Aren't we supposed to be coming more like who again? Oh, Jesus, that's right. We're supposed to be conformed into his image? Wow, is that what the kingdom of God is about? It's being more like him? Yeah. David goes on. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. These are the major cities of the Philistines. The Philistines were the ones that took down Saul. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Well, they, they already were. We look at other passages. The Philistines were already rejoicing. They were already celebrating. In fact, they had taken Saul's head and put it in a place to celebrate that their gods were superior. At least that's what they thought over the God of Israel. That wasn't the case, but that's what they were doing. And David said, I, I can't imagine. Don't, don't share this anywhere in those areas because I don't want the uncircumcised to be rejoicing over the death of the king of Israel. Remember when David had to take on Goliath. Goliath represents, he, he, was, he was a Philistine, you know, fighter. What does he represent? the world. What did David have to do to defeat Goliath? What was his weapon? Ultimately, you say, well, yeah, he had the cool slingshot, man. Thing was awesome. <laughs> Down goes Goliath. Yeah. But what he was actually fighting with was not the physical weapons per se. He was coming in the power of who? Almighty God. That's how we fight the battle. Not with carnal weapons. Notice 21. O mountains of Gilboa. This is where Saul died. Let not dew or rain be on you. Life shouldn't be going on as normal up there. Because the king and his son died there. Nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Shields were often anointed with oil or they were, they were uh, made wet with water to extinguish fiery arrows. If you were in uh, combat, mano y mano, one-on-one, -on -one, and you guys have seen ancient battle scenes, man, <laughs> there's no hiding behind trees pretty much in these ancient battle scenes. You, you go up, you're on the front lines, you got a shield and you got a sword and it's either kill or be killed. They would sometimes oil their shields to get 
uh, their opponent to deflect off of them or not be able to grab onto them. That was part of the deal. And they also would try to get it to extinguish weapons like fire arrows that would come at them. But notice, not anointed with oil also speaks that Saul lost something. What did Saul really lose, spiritually speaking? <laughs> it's pretty scary. We, we look at verses about Saul and we know that the Lord, just like in Samson's case, the Lord what? He departed from him. Some of us go, can that happen in the New Testament? <laughs> Is it possible for the Spirit to leave us? No, we're sealed for how long? Till the day of Christ, till the day of redemption. That was then. But Saul lost his anointing. And that's part of what happened here. Saul lost in the battle. But the battle is bigger than just actual war. The battle becomes a picture of the Christian faith. And we have a shield of faith by which we can extinguish how many? All the fiery arrows of the wicked one. All of them. Not some of them. How, what does it say? All of them. That's Ephesians 6.16. There's a really good book out. It's called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God. It's written by a guy named Pastor Michael Lance, if you want to check that out. Bargain price on Amazon. <laughs> Do you remember uh, when Samson lost everything? And finally the Philistines were making sport of him. He played with fire and lost and they, do you remember what happened to Samson? They gouged out his eyes. And he was, and basically he had to just serve the Philistines. It was brutal. Yesterday uh, during the USC game, there was a young man that was brought out. Um, he had, he actually had eye cancer when he was a baby. How many of you saw this in the football game? Uh, anyway, he had eye cancer as a baby. I think when he was just, a few months old, he lost one of the eyes and then lost the other one as a young teenager. So he had met Pete Carroll some years ago and he had a dream to be on a football field. He's totally blind. So he is a long snapper. So he actually snapped the ball for an extra point during the USC game yesterday. It was extremely moving. They, they, had, they had to walk him out, lead him out onto the field. The other team kind of just laid back. The snap was pretty good. Got it to the guy. Extra point was good. This guy's beaming smile was amazing. Something very little, but very profound. How many things we take for granted? Our eyes, our ability to do so many things. From the blood of the slain, 22, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not, what? Return empty. Now Saul did win some battles, but he fell on the battlefield. We have a sword. It's the, not the sword of Saul. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And God says, my word will not come back empty. It will accomplish the purpose that I have for it every single time. You're in battle. You need a shield of faith. You need the sword of the Spirit. And by the way, not much else to deal with the wicked one. And you know what he wants to get you to do? Lower your shield, lose your faith, lower your sword, don't know your Bible. And what happens? The mighty men and women fall. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life. He's, he loved Jonathan, but he's of course celebrating Saul for the good things. In their death, they were not parted. Jonathan could have given up on dad, but he didn't. 
They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And remember David, the new king, this, he's leading the nation through this grief. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, positives in Saul's reign. And then again, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan, Jonathan was his good buddy, is slain on your high places. High places often were places of pagan worship as well. If you want to look at a few verses on this, just write it down. Leviticus 26.30 and Jeremiah 17, especially verse 3. David says, I'm distressed over you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. By the way, uh, David was married to Jonathan's sister. And, I, and I'll just say this. We, ha we have a community right now out there in the world that's trying to say that David and Jonathan were in a same-sex relationship. Sorry. <clears throat> Wrong. Nice try. But not that good of a try. David was married to the guy's sister. <laughs> David was not into that lifestyle. But this is how desperate it's getting out there, you guys. What was the relationship between David and Jonathan? This, what does this language mean? They were buddies, <laughs> friends. They had made a covenant together to, to protect one another's families and one another's honor. How many of you have a good friend today? I hope you do. I hope you have more than one good friend. How many of you really treasure that good friend? It's, it's really amazing to have a good friend. For many of you, your spouse is one of your best friends. That, that should be the way it is. But there's other friends that you have too. Look, David and Jonathan were buddies. Jonathan had deferred to David, had really known that David was the up-and-coming king, and he gave him honor. And when David celebrated Jonathan, he had a lump in his throat. He was a good friend. Someone who was willing to love him through thick and thin. You got somebody like that in your life? Man, that's, that's special. It's a treasure. I've had some good friends move out of the state of California. They told me it wasn't my fault, but I don't know. I, I'm starting to get a little bit of a complex. Idaho. Idaho. <laughs> Idaho. What's up with Idaho? Are the potatoes that good? Anyway, how have the mighty fallen? The weapons of war perished. Uh, ushers, if you can get ready the communion elements, that would be wonderful. Father, we know the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are spiritual. For the demolishing of strongholds. The book of Isaiah says, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We know we're in a battle, and there's kingdoms in conflict, Lord, but thank you that there's a kingdom that will prevail. The greater David will sit on David's throne, and that kingdom will have no end. No end. And the king will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hurricanes, no more cancer. Oh, Lord. 
thank you that you're going to make everything right again. And thank you that he who spoke these words is faithful and true. Behold, I make not some, but all things new. Thank you that you started with us and a work in our hearts spiritually, Lord, where you are making us new from one degree of glory to another. You told us to look forward to that coming kingdom and seeing the king face to face by taking elements. We take matzah and juice and we remember a king pierced for us, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Lord God, thank you for such a king as this. It's an amazing gift, this king of glory who came down to save us. Lord, as we reflect on the king and the kingdom, that we belong to. We just want to give thanks, refresh our faith, renew our joy, give us the perspective of this kingdom and this king, change us more into the king's image until we meet him face to face.